Let me ask you, uh, why do you study the Bible? I assume you do study the Bible, and that's what we're just about to do together. And I do hope that you study the Bible, not just uh, as you listen to the preaching of the Word of God on Sunday mornings, but I do hope that you study the Word of God throughout the week. Why do you study the Bible? Why do you seek to grow in knowledge of the Scriptures? As Christians, we devote much time to this, do we not? You know, we have here in our church adult, adult Sunday school. And in the adult class, so we were just learning about what the Scriptures teach about God's common grace. We were studying the Scriptures together. And that was happening in all of the Sunday school classes at all ages. The Bible was being studied. We devote an hour or so in the worship service to the study of Scripture. On Wednesday nights, we don't just pray, we also study the Word of God together before we pray. Why do you devote so much time to studying the Bible, to growing in knowledge of the Word of God? It is very critical that you understand the purpose of studying the Bible. It's very important that you understand the purpose of growing in knowledge of God and growing in knowledge of His Word. And the passage that we will look at this morning does teach us something about the purpose of growing in the knowledge of God. And it would do well to take, pay close attention to this and apply this uh, to every time that you open the Bible. To apply this to every time that you study God's Word. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, I'm going to be reading to us verses 1 through 3. Uh, please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. In these three verses, we will see three problems and one virtue. Three problems and one virtue. The first problem is the problem of eating food offered to idols. The problem of eating food offered to idols. Look with me at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. It appears that the Corinthians brought up this subject in the letter that they had written to the Apostle Paul. If you go back to chapter 7 verse 1, Paul mentions that letter where he writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And in chapter 7, he addressed one or two of those matters about which they wrote. And now in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul apparently brings up another subject in the letter that they wrote to him when he says, now concerning food offered to idols. This will be the subject on Paul's mind, all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. 
So this was a significant issue uh, in the church at Corinth at this time. Food sacrificed to idols. Understand that idolatry was woven throughout daily life in Corinth. Acts chapter 17 verse 16 tells us what Paul saw when he went to a neighboring city, the city of Athens. Acts 17 verse 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for his co-workers, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He saw that Athens was full of idols, and Corinth really would not have been any different. Corinth also was full of idols. Greco-Roman cities like Corinth were filled with a potpourri of gods and goddesses, of temples and shrines devoted to their honor and worship. And the customary form of both public and private worship was sacrifice. Sacrifice to the gods involved killing an animal, giving the animal to the deity in a ceremony, butchering the animal, cooking it, offering a small part of it to the deity, and serving the rest in honor of the deity at a meal. Leftover meat was then delivered to butcher shops to then be sold in the marketplace. And other kinds of foods were consecrated to idols as well, not just meat. Offering food to idols was intertwined with social, civic, and commercial life. Civic festivals invited, in, I'm sorry, civic festivals involved eating sacrificial meals. Trade guilds often met in temple dining rooms and ate sacrificial meals together. Temple banqueting rooms were rented out for private functions. This was often done for weddings. Uh, to celebrate the birth of a child, for birthdays, for coming-of-age parties, to celebrate election victories, for funerals. The family would rent out a banqueting room that was part of one of the temples, a temple to a false god or goddess. And at these events that were held on the temple precincts, the food that was served had been offered to idols, seeking the favor of the god or goddess. The meals were served in honor of the god or goddess, and the deity was considered to be present at the meal. That was the customary way to celebrate a wedding, the customary way to celebrate the birth of a child, to celebrate birthdays, coming of age, election victories, and that was common with funerals. All these significant moments in our lives were intertwined with worship of idols. These meals that were served in honor of the god or goddess of that temple. The temples were the restaurants of that day. Now many of the believers in Corinth had grown up as idolaters. They are no longer idolaters. They've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But before being saved, they had lived lives of idolatry, worshiping the gods and goddesses. But when they were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, after hearing the gospel of Christ, 
They made a break with idolatry. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, uh, we, we read of the break that the Thessalonian believers had made in their conversion, the break that they had made with idols. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That was true of any Christian who had a background in idolatry. Their conversion involved turning to God, turning to the the living God from idols uh, to serve the living and true God. But... What all does it mean to turn from idols? This is something that Paul most certainly addressed early in his ministry in Corinth, since the majority of believers in the church were saved out of lives of idolatry. He would have taught them what it means to turn from idols. Now, among other things, turning from idols means no longer eating in a pagan temple and no longer eating food known to have been offered to idols. Go back to Acts chapter 15, where we have the Jerusalem Council, which gave instructions to Gentile believers about this. Acts chapter 15 In Acts 15, uh, Paul um, has gone to Jerusalem. He's speaking with the apostles there. Uh, There's various issues that need to be discussed. Now that Gentiles are being saved, how are Gentile Christians now to live? Uh, Do they need to adopt all of the the, the Mosaic requirements uh, that were upon the Jews and, and so forth. So these, these questions of how is a Gentile Christian to live. And here in Acts 15, I'm going to pick it up at verse 19. Verse 19, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. That's what I'm talking about. Not eating food that has been offered to an idol. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, as seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So notice that the first uh, prohibition uh, given to the Gentiles uh, in this letter uh, is prohibiting uh, what has been sacrificed to idols. Gentile believers were not to eat food that was known to have been sacrificed to an idol. That would constitute idolatry. Turn over to Revelation chapter 2 where we see the same thing. Revelation chapter 2. Though clear instruction was given by the apostles, some of the churches did not follow the instruction. At least parts of the church did not follow the instruction. And so they needed to be rebuked. In Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Uh, Here we have a letter from the risen, exalted Christ to the church in Pergamum. And in the middle of this letter, in verse 14... Uh, Christ says to the church, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So just as had happened with Israel, so in this church, uh, there were some who, uh, who taught that the Christians would, were, were to, could eat food sacrificed to idols, and could practice sexual immorality, that there was license to do these things. And this is contrary to the apostolic teaching. This is contrary to the will of God. And the exalted Christ rebukes the church for this and says that they must repent. Repent of various things, including eating food known to have been sacrificed to idols. And then go down to to verse 20, same chapter, verse 20, in the letter to the church in Thyatira, something similar in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Christ says, I have this against you. So, clearly, in the New Testament, uh, those who, even though they had a background in this, even though it was part of the culture, a Christian who was saved was no longer to eat food that is known to have been sacrificed to an idol. Now, coming back to 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian believers would have faced great pressure to eat food offered to idols. Uh, They did not want to lose family, social, and business connections. You know, as I've said before, uh, this was very much part of family life, very much part of civic life very part, much part of trade guilds of business, that you would have these meals on the precincts of an idol's temple, eating food that had been sacrificed to the idols. So now that you're a Christian, 
you know, if, if you're not going to eat this food any longer, you are going to lose family, social, and business connections. You're going to say, I cannot participate in that meal, and that meal, and that meal. Refusing to attend sacrificial meals would destroy your social status. It would mark you off in the eyes of unbelievers as odd and repugnant. It would make you a social outcast seen as holding outlandish, antisocial, perverse religious beliefs. And potentially, it would make you to be seen as an enemy of the state because the protection of the gods was seen as necessary for the well-being of the city and of the rest of the state. So there would have been great peer pressure, great temptation, great pressure to even though you know that as Christians you're not supposed to participate, or you've heard that you're not supposed to participate in these things, there'd be great pressure to somehow justify it in your mind. To justify participating in these feasts. You could say, well, I know that the idols really are nothing. I know there's only one God. These are, are, are false gods. I, I know that the food is not is not somehow changed in its substance when it's offered to an idol. If I participate by coming to the meal, in my heart I will not be worshipping the idol. In my heart I will not be worshipping the God of that temple. I'm just going there for social reasons. I'm just going there to further my relationship with my family members, to be supportive of my family members. I'm just going there so that I can have these business connections. It's what's required of our, of our, of our trade guild. What's my boss going to say if I don't go? There would be great pressure to justify participating in these meals at the temple, eating food that is known to have been offered to idols. This is the background for what the Apostle will say in chapters 8 through 10 about food offered to idols. And as we study these chapters, 8 through 10, paragraph by paragraph over the course of the next couple months, it is vitally important that we keep the whole section in view. There are two main interpretations of this section. Two main interpretations of what Paul teaches in this section about food offered to idols. The most common interpretation is that the problem in Corinth was that there were some believers who believed that as Christians they had liberty to eat food known to have been sacrificed to idols. And this view says that as long as they had a clear conscience, that was okay for them. And you had others in the church who did not have a clear conscience about eating the food that had been sacrificed to idols. And so the issue is how those who, have, who recognize Christian liberty are to care for their weaker brothers and sisters who don't have a clear conscience about doing this. So in the first view... 
eating food known to have been sacrificed to idols is not inherently wrong, but it would be wrong if it encourages your weaker brother to go against their conscience. That's one view. That's the most common interpretation of chapters 8 through 10. I don't agree with that interpretation. There is a second interpretation. It's the interpretation of the early church. An interpretation which is now making a comeback. I agree with the second interpretation. After studying this as thoroughly as I could this week. Here's the issue. The rest of the New Testament makes clear that a Christian is not to eat food known to have been sacrificed to an idol. And yet... The Corinthians were trying to justify doing so. This is not the first time for Paul to communicate to the Corinthians about food sacrifice to idols. He would have communicated about it. He would have taught about it when he was there for 18 months uh, planting the church. And there's been some correspondence between them. So now they have written a letter and Paul's responding to this. This is this is, we're jumping into the middle of a conversation between Paul and the Corinthians. They are trying to justify eating food known to have been sacrificed to idols. And Paul writes chapters 8 and 10 to correct them on this. Let me show you why I believe this second interpretation is correct. Look at chapter 10 beginning in verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Well, then an, an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? In these verses, Paul speaks against eating the food that was known to have been sacrificed to idols. He addresses it as idolatry that every Christian is to flee from. Now, when Paul speaks in chapter 8 about food offered to idols, part of what he has in mind is eating in an idol's temple. Go back to chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. What does he have in mind for foods that offered to idols? Look at verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Among other things, in chapter 8, he has in mind eating in an idol's temple. Something that in chapter 10, he says is idolatry. Something that in chapter 10, he says the Christian is not to do. 
In chapter 8, Paul speaks against eating food that is known to have been offered to idols on the basis of its effect on the weak. Then, in chapter 10, he speaks against the same thing, but now on the basis of it being idolatry. You see, Paul is not only concerned about the Corinthians committing idolatry, he is also concerned about their lack of love for their brothers. And so he addresses both concerns in a strategic order. Now in the middle of those two chapters, we have chapter 9, which we will see later is tightly connected to what he says in chapter 8. So when the Apostle Paul brings up now in chapter 8 verse 1, food sacrifice to idols, he is bringing up some big problems in the Corinthian church. A church that we have already seen had worldly values. We saw that when Paul was speaking about wisdom and the factions within the church, the party spirit. Uh, they had worldly values. They valued worldly wisdom and so forth. This was a church that valued worldly things. And we see that again here uh, with what they were doing with trying to justify eating food sacrifice to idols. Now, as we study chapters 8 through 10 over the next month or two, we will need to make various applications to our lives. Scripture is applicable to our lives. Uh, we're going to see today, it would be very problematic if we study chapters 8 through 10 without applying this passage to our lives. How do we apply what it says about not eating food sacrificed to idols? Today, in parts of Asia, food sacrificed to idols or food sacrificed to ancestors is a big deal. And believers in those parts of the world can make direct application uh, to their lives. For us in America, we need to relate this section to participating in functions and activities that are clearly idolatrous or clearly demonic or clearly belonging to false religion. I plan to elaborate on this next week. Well, our text, verses 1 through 3, is the launching pad for what the Apostle Paul has to say about the problem of eating food offered to idols. And in this passage, we see next the problem of having knowledge without love. The problem of having knowledge without love. Look again at verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I want you to observe the quotation marks used in the ESV if you have the ESV. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, unquote. Paul appears to be quoting from the Corinthians letter. Um, back in verse Seven, chapter 7, verse 1, he had, he had quoted from the letter when he said, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We saw that was not Paul's position entirely, but he was quoting from their letter and responding to that. So we have something similar here in chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, he seems to be quoting from their letter when he says, All of us possess knowledge. Now, what knowledge would the Corinthians have boasted in? They were very good at boasting. 
uh, what knowledge would they have boasted in? They would have boasted in the knowledge that Paul speaks of in chapter 8, verse 4. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And again, the ESV uses uses quotation marks to suggest that these are quotations from their letter. We as Christians know these things. One, an idol has no real existence. Number two, there is no God but one. These truths were a critical component of Paul's evangelistic preaching to Gentiles. He had to establish these things very early on in his preaching if his recipients were going to be able to have any understanding of the gospel. Now, the Corinthian believers evidently justified their practice of eating food offered to idols by citing their knowledge of these truths. Idols aren't real. There's only one true God. The food's being offered to, to nothing when it's offered to an idol. The Corinthian believers evidently justified their practice of eating food offered to idols by citing their knowledge of these theological truths. Now Paul's immediate concern here is with what the Corinthians did and did not do with this fundamental knowledge. Paul says this knowledge has puffed them up. The Corinthian believers were puffed up about various things. Go back to chapter 4 verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. Talking about the, the factions, the party spirits. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That was going on within the church. One would be puffed up in favor of another. Go down to verse 18. Verse 18. Some are arrogant. That's another way to say puffed up. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. There were arrogant people in the church in Corinth who were not willing to, to, to learn from the teaching of Paul. And then go down to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Again, you are arrogant. You are puffed up. And now we see in our text that their knowledge about idols, having no real existence, has also puffed them up. Knowledge of God and of His Word that is not used properly can inflate your ego. Knowledge of God and His Word that is not used properly can puff up your head with pride. And this comes from the flesh. This is a fleshly response to acquiring knowledge. To become puffed up that I know this. Now love does just the opposite. What does verse 1 say that love does? Love builds up. Knowledge not used properly, properly puffs up, while love builds up. In other words, love edifies. You can translate it either way. Builds up, edifies. The word to edify means to build up. 
Love builds up. It edifies. Love builds up your brothers and sisters. The scriptures don't teach about edifying ourselves. It speaks about edifying others. Edifying our our brothers. Love builds up your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the Corinthians' major problems was that they had knowledge without love. Now, knowledge is important. It is impossible to believe or obey what you do not know. And in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, uh, we read these words that were spoken by God through His prophets uh, to Israel. Hosea 4, 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. You will be destroyed for lack of knowledge. In 1 Corinthians, Paul repeatedly asks, Do you not know? In chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? There was something that he trusted that they knew, a theological truth that he trusted that they understood, but they were not applying to their daily lives. Do you not know this? Chapter 5, verse 6b, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Chapter 6, verse 15a, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16a, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Verse 19a, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Knowledge is important. There's no substitute for knowledge. But, knowledge must be applied in love. The use of knowledge must be governed by biblical love. What does it mean to love your brother? Well, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. We don't have to go far for Paul to describe love. Chapter 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's love. When instead of seeking your own good, you seek the good of your neighbor. And Paul will tell us a lot more about what love is in chapter 13. If knowledge does not translate into love, that knowledge amounts to nothing. In God's sight. Turn over to chapter 13, verse 2. We're just going to look at one verse in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am what? I am nothing. If knowledge does not translate into love, that knowledge amounts to nothing in God's sight. You can come back to chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 1, the apostle is saying that knowledge of the things of God will either puff you up or they will lead to love. To love for the brethren and love for God. And in the case of the Corinthians, knowledge had puffed them up. When you are puffed up in pride, there is no room inside you for love. 
Pride and love are opposites. Pride exalts self, while love humbles oneself and seeks the good of another. Pride and love are diametrically opposed. In the case of the Corinthians, they had knowledge, but it failed to translate into love for their brethren. They were eating in the temples of idols without any care for how that would affect their brothers. And in so doing, Paul says, they were destroying their brother. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. 8.11, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Just the opposite of love, which builds up. Verse 1 says, Knowledge by itself puffs up, but love builds up. So let me ask you, as you learn the Bible, what is happening within you? As you learn the Bible, are you being puffed up? Or is the knowledge that you gain translating into love that builds up other believers? A very important question to consider. Either one or the other is happening in your life when you read the Scriptures. Either one or the other is happening as you grow in knowledge of God's Word. Either that knowledge is puffing you up or it's being translated into love. Love for God, love for your brothers. So is your head getting bigger or are your brothers being built up into Christ-likeness? Well, we've seen two problems in our text so far. First of all, the problem of eating food offered to idols, which is idolatry, the subject for the next three chapters. And we've seen the problem of having knowledge without love, which is behind the problem in the Corinthian church. There's also a third problem in our text, and it is related. It's the problem of being a know-it-all. The problem of being a know-it-all. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now this verse is the first half of a contrast. The second half of the contrast is verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The apostle here is seeking to humble the Corinthians who were proud of their knowledge. Something, knowledge was something that their culture exalted. It would be very natural from, for them as Corinthians to take pride in their knowledge, to boast in their knowledge. But as Christians, they've been called to something different. The apostle is seeking to humble these Corinthians who are proud of their knowledge. Paul says there is something greater than having knowledge, and that is being known by God. If someone thinks that they have arrived as far as knowledge of something is concerned, Paul says they reveal their lack of knowledge. The truth is that we still have much to learn. But if someone loves God, their love for God reveals that they are known by God. The more knowledge you obtain, the more you find out what you do not know. But the one who loves God rests secure in the God who has known him with a perfect knowledge. 
We will look closer at verse 3 in our last point, but we, for, for, for now we need to focus more on verse 2. Let me ask you, if love does not translate into love for I'm sorry, if knowledge does not translate into love for God and love for people, what good is it? You can learn all about the attributes of God. But if you are not moved by that knowledge of God's attributes to love God and to reflect God in loving people, what good is it? You may learn the nuances of the triune nature of God and all the heresies regarding this that the church has rejected, that are anti-Trinitarian. But if this knowledge does not lead you to love the triune God, and to love your neighbor made in the image of the triune God, what good is it? You can study the Bible's prophecies of what God will do in the future. You can become an expert on the different views held by Orthodox Christians on these prophecies. And you can become so sure from Scripture that your view is true. But if this study does not result in deeper love for God and deeper love for people, what good is it? All this knowledge is just scratching the surface of all that there is to know about God. Study all the Bible says about God's sovereignty. Seek to understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Become learned in the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. Become learned in the doctrines of grace. But if this knowledge does not translate to love for the God of grace and love for God's elect, what good is it? If you love knowledge for knowledge's sake, Understand from what Paul says, you are on a path to nowhere. Now in contrast to this, stands the virtue of loving God. The virtue of loving God. And this is where all true knowledge should lead. All true knowledge should lead to loving God. Look again with me at verse 3. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. The Corinthians knew that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. But did they love the one they knew about? You could not answer that question affirmatively by looking at the way they conducted themselves. The way they conducted themselves did not show, did not give evidence that they loved God. God. Do you love the one whose word you are studying? Does your knowledge of his word move you to love him? What does it mean to love God? To love God is to reflect back to God the love that he has first shown us. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. And 1 John 4, 7 says, love is from God. To love God is to reflect back to God the love He has first shown us. And love for God has two necessary components. One component is commitment. Loving God includes commitment to God. Secondly, love for God includes affection. 
affection for God. Those are the two main components of love for God, commitment to Him, and affection for Him. Loving God involves both, and it results in obedience to Him. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience results from love. The Puritan Matthew Henry explains loving God so very well in his classic commentary on the Bible. And Matthew Henry's commentary on the the Bible is available for free on the internet. Uh, It's a great commentary to go to uh, when you come across a passage of Scripture and you want to understand it it better. Uh, Read what Matthew Henry has said as he has taught that in his commentary. It's helpful. Listen to what Matthew Henry, how Matthew Henry explained loving God in his commentary on Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse uh, five, uh, 4 and 5. Quote, We must highly esteem Him. This is what it means to love God. He says, We must highly esteem Him. Be well pleased that there is such a being. Well pleased in all His attributes and relations to us. Our desire must be towards Him, our delight in Him, our dependence upon Him. And to Him we must be entirely devoted. It must be a constant pleasure to us to think of Him, hear from Him, speak to Him, and serve Him. We must love Him as the Lord, the the best of beings, most excellent and amiable in Himself. And we must love Him as our God a God in covenant with us, our Father, and the most kind and bountiful of friends and benefactors, unquote. So let me ask you, is that true? I'm sorry, is it true of you that you love God? Now that we've been talking about what it means to love God, it's very easy to say, yeah, I love God, without understanding what it means to love Him. Now that we're talking about what it means to love God, do you love God? Do you recognize that He is the most excellent of beings? Do you highly esteem Him? Are you well pleased in all that He is and all that He does? It is your desire towards Him and your delight in Him. Are you entirely devoted to Him as the Lord your God? Is it a constant pleasure to you to think of Him? A constant pleasure to hear His word? to speak to Him and to serve Him. This is what it means to love Him. And this is where all knowledge should ultimately lead. Love for God sets a worshiper of the true God apart from a worshiper of idols. Worshippers of false gods do not have true love for the gods that they worship. They seek the favor of their gods but they do not love them. They serve their gods in order to get something from them, but they do not love them. But a worshiper of the true God worships God because he loves God. And Christians can be described in Scripture as those who love God. For example, Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. When he says, those who love God, is he talking about a subcategory of Christians? No. He's not saying for some Christians this is true. For those Christians who love God, this is true. No, he's speaking of all Christians when he says, for those who love God. 
What he says here is true of all Christians. Christians can be described as those who love God. You see that in James 1 verse 12 as well. James 1 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. Again, not a subset of Christians. He's describing all Christians as those people who love God. It is love for God that moves the worshiper of God to obey Him. Out of love for the true God, one avoids participation with idols. Love for God is a stronger motivation than all of the world's motivations piled together. And Paul is seeking to take these Corinthians who lacked love, lacked love for God, lacked the corresponding love for their brethren, who've been puffed up with knowledge, it was evident in the way that they were interacting, the way they were treating their brothers. He's directing them to what must be done with love. I'm sorry, what must be done with knowledge. Our knowledge must be applied. It must be applied to loving God. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Or the Legacy Standard Bible, he has been known by God. That, that, that's the sense of the, the grammar. If, but if anyone loves God, he has been known by God. In other words, being known by God precedes loving God. In other words, love for God is the most important evidence that you are known by God. Love for God is the fruit the root is being known by God. So what does it mean to be known by God? If anyone loves God, he is known by God. What does it mean to be known by God? It does not mean merely that God knows about you. God is omniscient. He knows about both those whom he saves and those whom he does not save. He has created both. Uh, he gives life and breath to both. No. To be known by God is far more than God knowing about you. Let's look at some similar passages in order to seek to understand what it means to be known by God. Turn back to Amos chapter 3. The prophet Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The Lord says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Clearly, not talking about just knowing about them. God knows about all the nations. This is a special relationship between Him and Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. 
Some translations here translate this not as known, but as chosen. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Because here the word to know is used in that sense of, of choice. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. And you'll find that in the New American Standard 1995 edition. It means here brought into relationship. You only have I brought into relationship with myself. Of all the families of the earth, you only have I brought into relationship with myself. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7, another example of this kind of terminology. This time from the lips of Christ. You want to know what it means to be known by God? We've seen it has the idea of choice, of being brought into relationship with God. Matthew 7, verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus will say to some on that last day, who think that they have a place in heaven, He will say to them, I never knew you. A pastor stated it well when he wrote, quote, What makes a person a Christian is not so much your knowing God, but His knowing of you. It's not so much your regard and love for God, but rather His regard and love of you that really makes you a Christian. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He says, I, I know them. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Where we have the, the word to, to foreknow, or foreknowledge. Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, notice the first term in verse 29, for those whom He foreknew. What does it mean for us as Christians that God foreknew us? It means that He knew us beforehand. It does not mean that He knew that we would do something. No, it means that He loved us beforehand with a special saving love. It means He chose us beforehand to bring us into relationship with Himself. And if you compare with Ephesians 1, you see this was before the foundation of the world. This is before the first man and woman were even created. God foreknew His elect. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know that you are among these whom God foreknew. He knew you beforehand. He loved you beforehand with a special saving love. He chose you beforehand to bring you into relationship with Himself. And then turn over to Galatians chapter 4. One last passage. Galatians chapter 4 verse 8. 
verses 8 and 9. Uh, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Notice that he says in verse 9, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. He's saying what's ultimate is being known by God. That that's the root. And the fruit is knowing God. The result is knowing God. The Christian, he's saying that the Christians coming to know God was not initiated by the Christian, but it was initiated by God. Coming to know God is the fruit, being known by God is the root. Coming to know God is the, the effect, being known by Him is the cause. Something more fundamental happened than us coming to know God. What is more fundamental is that we came to be known by God. Now come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We have this marvelous statement here in our text in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If you love God, that is evidence of being known by God, of being loved personally and savingly by God. Your love for God is evidence of being known by God as one of His own beloved people. You love Him because He first loved you. Now this being known by God, which is at the root, this is the most valuable blessing conceivable. What could be more valuable than being known by God in a saving way? Nothing. It's the most valuable blessing conceivable. Now the Corinthians had knowledge that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And they used that knowledge to justify caving into the world's pressure to eat food offered to idols. Instead, that knowledge should have led them to love the one true God and to love their brother. And such love for God would have led them to flee from the worship of what was false. Just as love for your spouse will lead you to flee from immorality. We've seen three problems and one virtue. We've seen the problem of eating food offered to idols. We've seen the problem of having knowledge without love. We've seen the problem of being a know-it-all. And we've seen the virtue of loving God. Are you known by God? If you believe you are known by God, that God has brought you into a saving relationship with Himself, what is the evidence that you are known by God? Is there within you a growing love for God? A growing love for God that issues in obedience to Him? If after looking at these things you say, I don't think I'm known by God. I, I, I don't think I'm in a saving relationship with, with, with God. Then you need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to hear the good news of the Bible. The Bible does not teach us to work our way into right relationship with God. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that there is none righteous, no, not even one. 
that we all are rebellious against God at the core. And that's evidenced in the way that we relate to God. That's evidenced in the way that we relate to the people around us. The longer we live our life, the more obvious it is that we are in rebellion against God. And what we need is not instruction on how we can improve ourselves. What we need is not instruction on how we can make ourselves into a good person. What we need is good news of what God has done to rescue sinners. We need good news of what God has done to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sins. What God has has done to, to make us a new creation in Christ. And that is what the gospel of Christ is about. It has nothing to do with self-effort, nothing to do with, with, with self-work. It has everything to do with the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who is holy, the God who is just, He did not condemn the world unto uh, immediate judgment, but rather, God sent His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, That Jesus entered into this world to the miracle of incarnation in the womb of a virgin. That he was born as a human being. He was born as a a baby boy from the womb of of Mary, from the the virgin. Here we have the God-man. God had become human. He added to himself a human nature. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have one who is both God and now man. And that God the Son became man in order to redeem sinners. God the Son became man in order to be our mediator, to bring us to God. And what Jesus Christ did was He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He fulfilled the law entirely. And though He was righteous and holy and innocent, He laid down His life. He voluntarily suffered the cross. He suffered crucifixion. He was treated as if he were guilty. He he was treated as if he had committed treason. There he was crucified. The righteous for the unrighteous. The godly for the ungodly. He voluntarily laid down his life in sacrifice. Becoming a curse for us. Bearing our sin, bearing our guilt, paying the penalty that we deserve for our sin. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus died in our place to give us life. And having paid the penalty for our sin at the cross, He was buried, and on the third day He was raised in victory. And He's alive today. He showed Himself alive to His disciples, many of them. There's many witnesses who've given their testimony in the Scriptures to the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. He was raised as the promised Christ. He was raised as Lord and God. His, His resurrection declared Him to be the Son of God in power. And Jesus Christ has sent forth the good news of salvation through His death and resurrection. The good news that Christ has sent forth calls all people, men, women, boys, and girls, to repent of sin, to to turn from sin, to, to confess your sin to God and to forsake your sin, turning from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in Him as your Savior from sin, trusting in Him as your Lord, submitting your life to His Lordship, 
to now follow Him as His disciple the rest of your days. This is faith. It's not just believing things about Jesus. It's not just believing things about the gospel. The the demons have a greater theology than we do. The demons know who God is. They know what God has done. And they shudder when they think of who God is. But they have no salvation. You can know all that there is to know of the gospel and not be saved. You need to trust in Jesus as your Savior. You need to submit your life to the Lordship of Christ. You need to commit yourself to Christ to follow Him as your Lord, to follow Him as your Master. This is faith. It's by grace that we as believers have been saved. Not by works so that no one can boast. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the person of Christ. Faith in the finished work of Christ. Faith in the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ. Who lives evermore to intercede for his own. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come to Jesus Christ now in repentance and faith. And you will be saved. He will not cast away anyone who comes to him in faith. Well, we have seen much this morning. Uh, may the, the Spirit of God lead us in applying what we have seen uh, to our hearts and lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel of your grace. Oh Lord, may we not be puffed up with the knowledge that we, we gain of you from your word but by your Spirit working in us, may that knowledge translate into love for you and love for other people, for our brethren and for lost souls. Help us, Father, in applying this. Lord, there's none of us who say that we we love you as we ought to love you. The more we get to know you, the more we see that we do not love you as we ought to love you. We see that our, our, our love is colder than it ought to be. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grow us in love for you. And we know there's no shortcut to, to loving you. It is a result of your Spirit living within us. And it is produced by your Spirit in us as we grow in knowledge of you. As we respond, the more we get to know of you as we respond to that knowledge with love. Oh Lord, we love the things of this world too much and we love you too little. Oh Lord, purify our minds, our, our thoughts, that we would think rightly and that we would love you with all of our heart, that we would love you with all of our soul, that we would love you with all of our strength unto your eternal glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.